0: Let me invite you to open up into your Bibles to the book of James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we're picking up where we, we left off a few months ago. And as we do that, we're going to be thinking about the desires that are at work within us this morning. James 4 verses 1 through 5. As, as human beings, as creatures who live on the surface of the earth, we don't always spend a lot of time thinking about kind of the earth beneath us, what's happening underneath our feet at any given time. But some of the most spectacular places, some of the most spectacular features, features of, of what happens here on the, on the top of the earth, the surface of the earth, are actually the result of things happening deep underground. In the, the far western part of China, as you're heading up into the Tibetan Plateau, there's a region there called Zhoujiaigo, and it's, it's heavily photographed, it's a national park, uh, it's in movies of all sorts. And it's, it's notable because of its unique beauty. And it's, a, it's a, a unique sort of landscape that's been created because of forces under the earth. Because it lies on a major fault line. The shifting of tectonic plates. Uh, the process of landslides over thousands of years. And glacial activity in this particular region has resulted in this subterranean mineral deposit, primarily of calcium carbonate, that that goes even several thousand meters down under the Earth's surface. And it's created this unique series of of valleys and streams and pools and waterfalls that have this sparkling emerald water. It's, It's like this vibrant green color but it's incredibly clear. You can see all the way to the bottom of, of all the rivers and pools, even if they're, they're quite deep. You can see the, the trees that have fallen, and they're often preserved for quite a long time in this particular water. It's one of the most magical and, and kind of tranquil places I've ever been. But that same region, that same landscape, the the serenity of that place can also be transformed in an instant also because of what lies beneath the surface if you remember back in 2008 there was quite a significant earthquake was in the global news and it was in this same part of China in Sichuan province and it devastated hundreds of villages It, it killed tens of thousands of people in the cities and in the aftermath of that earthquake, that region has invested quite a bit of, of money and time and research into studying more carefully the seismic activity you know, underground and planning accordingly for, for the events that, that could happen in the future. And so we see you know, in this sort of geological way that what happens down deep in, in hidden places greatly affects what happens in, in our actual lived everyday lives. And as we begin our study of James for today, what, us, what I think James is, is inviting us to consider is to, to look deeper, to consider and to take seriously the forces that are within us in deep and hidden places, in the places of our souls And in particular, James wants to speak to the the strata of who we are, where our desires are at work. And if you had to to pick one of these two pictures that we've just described, which one would you say is describing what's happening within you right now? Are you experiencing serenity and, and peace and beauty? Or, or quaking and instability? Right? Are, are you experiencing rich deposits of, of spirit-given life? Spirit-given peace? Spirit-given beauty? Spirit-given justice? Drawn up from, from the springs of who God is within you. What he's doing within you. Or do you notice kind of a, a turbulence Are there more explosive rumblings, urges, emotions, maybe hurts, wounds, other desires that are, are shifting away like those tectonic plates? And this pressure is kind of building, just waiting to erupt. What desires rule us, James is going to ask. So as we open up to James let me pray for us that the Word of God might speak clearly at this level of heart and desire. Lord would you, through the grace and work of your Holy Spirit, calm our hearts whatever is, is happening within us, maybe even if we're unaware, if we've, if we've not taken the time to notice recently. Lord, would you still those things now so that we might receive your voice, your wisdom, your words to us. And as we prayed last week, Lord, would would those words come to be planted within us that they might save us, Jesus. We might experience your saving word. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your notebooks, I hope some of you were able to bring them back this week. If not, there should be some at both entrances to the sanctuary. If you really need one, you can jump up and grab one. Looks like Arnie is going to grab some. So uh, if you'd like one, actually, you can pop your hand up and and he'll bring them around as we get going. But last week, we, we spent some time doing sort of a refresher of James 1 through 3. And we ran through that pretty quickly. But we wanted to surface again kind of the major ideas and themes in James's letter. And I, I suggested that I think a major purpose in why James collects his, his thoughts in this letter is to remind us that God is always working in our lives, both through good and even especially through difficult circumstances. And he's working so that our faith might grow to be mature he says. We might grow to have complete faith. We might grow so that we don't lack any of the good gifts God would desire to grow in us. And at the very end of those first three chapters, at the end of chapter three, where we kind of last left off, James takes some time to describe what it looks like when we begin to live our lives and become people who are filled up with the wisdom of God, or what he calls the the wisdom of heaven. James says there, right, if, you look at, if you're in your Bibles, right at the, the end of chapter 3, the last verse, he says that when we're full of the wisdom of heaven, one of the most notable things about us is that we become peacemakers. We become people who sow peace, not only in our own lives, but into the world around us, and we reap a harvest of righteousness because we're, we're full of, we're living and, and active upon the wisdom God has shared with us. But now, as we start into chapter 4, James is going to, to examine kind of the antithesis of that. He says, if, if we're living filled with the wisdom of God, we, we often experience what it is to be a peacemaker. But if we notice that there are conflicts around us, conflicts coming out of us, quarreling, division, then, then James wants to ask in return, well, then what is within us? What's causing that to happen? It's not wisdom from heaven, but something else. So we're going to look at James 4, 1 through 3 to begin, then we'll pick up verses 4 and 5 in a few minutes. If you've got a pencil or a pen in your notebook, feel free to copy these verses out as we read. Verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James describes the experience of of quarreling or, or fighting, being distressed, I want you to to try to remember the last time you were in the middle of a conflict, an argument, when you, the last time your sort of inner equilibrium was disturbed, and if you live with young children, that might have been 30 minutes ago on the way in, might have been 30 seconds ago when somebody gave you an elbow or asked for something for the fifth time. If not, maybe it was during a recent phone call. Where, where something that was said rubbed you the wrong way. Maybe the last time you've, you experienced conflict was in a meeting at, at work or, or through some role you have in leadership. Maybe the last time you found yourself in the middle of a quarrel or a conflict was over Christmas during the holidays with family members who you don't see eye to eye with. James wants us to to remember these circumstances, these situations. And in verse 1, he asks us, what causes these things? He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Let's try to diagnose this thing. And if you're like me, my reflex when I'm in the middle of a conflict or an argument is to point to circumstances or actions that preceded the conflict, right? He did this, or she said that. In the middle of of a conflict, most of us are prone to fault-finding, and usually it's not our own fault we're looking for, it's someone else's, right? Blame-shifting. It wasn't me. I didn't do this. They should have done this. And so when we think about conflict and what causes them, our, our reflex usually is to point out, for our fingers to point out and say, this is what's to blame. But James actually goes a different direction. He traces the source of our conflicts back to a different dimension. And he says that conflicts don't so much start out there as they start in here. He says they start with a whole world of desires that battle within you. And in verse 2, he goes on to describe how a war can be raging within our own persons, within our own bodies, within our own minds and souls and spirits. And we may only be partially aware of, of its existence. He points to these desires battling. And so he gives us kind of a uh, an explanation of, as to how these things tend to progress. He says, first of all, a desire forms within you. And when we think about desires, there are desires that probably from their very inception are, are ugly, are, are not good. But actually probably many, if not most, of our desires start in, in normal, reasonable ways. They start from Things God has placed within us that we long for or that we need to fulfill. But often desires grow from there into unhealthy things, unhealthy decisions, unhealthy behaviors. So let's say you have a desire to be respected. You have a desire for for someone else or, or others to respect a choice you've made or conviction you hold about something. Something that matters to you. But in the, in the course of events, let's say someone says or does something to you that doesn't feel like you're being respected. It doesn't feel very gracious to you. What happens then to that desire for respect? Well, that desire for respect probably then morphs in a desire for self-righteousness to prove our point, to show that we're right, and then it could quickly again morph into a different desire, could give, give way to an angry desire to take respect away from the other person who won't give it to us. And at each turn, the desires within us can, can grow, they can mutate, they can shift, and they can be set in opposition against each other. And James, as he describes this, helps us to see that the possibility of satisfying these different battling, competing desires within us, the possibility of resolving all that becomes smaller and smaller, the greater the desires grow. And instead, the intensity of our our competition and our aggression to get what we want, what we need, increases, it it spikes, and it, it creates what he describes as a battle. As a war within us. There was a, a great movie several years ago that came out from Pixar and Disney called Inside Out. And if you've seen the film, you know that uh, the film is partly about the main character, a young girl named Riley, who is going through a, a major move and, and all of the, the emotions that that stirs up within her. But, but actually, the, the majority of the film focuses not so much on what's happening outside of Riley, but what's happening within her. And, and there are these characters that are personified in the film. Their, their names are sadness, disgust, anger, fear, and joy. And they are sort of at the control center within this young girl. You see them you know, at these, these there's a, you know, buttons and switches and things they're controlling. And whenever one of those desires, whenever one of those emotions gets the controls, right, they, they begin to dictate how Riley behaves in real life. How aware are you of what's at the controls within you at any given moment? How good are you at noticing when you're you're being driven by anger or driven by anxiety or driven by excitement or even joy? Are you aware of what James says, are these desires battling within you? Sometimes I think our emotions and desires can be so powerful that we sort of feel that we are at the mercy of wherever they lead us. Wherever they would take us, we just sort of can't help it. And in verses 2 and 3, I think James wants us to remind us that when this is the case, when we experience these battling desires within us, we've probably excluded an important presence, an important voice in that conversation. He says we've forgotten about the presence and the reality of God dwelling within us. He says we we do not have what we most deeply desire because we haven't asked God about what we desire. We haven't brought God into that internal dialogue and conversation. And where we have, James says, usually when we do ask God in in some quick prayer, often our tendency is, is just to get God to kind of rubber stamp whatever it is we want we ask God in a, in a directive way. God, validate my desires. Give me what I want so I can use it for myself. I want to invite you to consider a, a simple practice this week. I'm going to give you two of these. The first of, one, first of them comes from, from these verses. What would it, it be like to ask God about your desires? ask God to to shape and to order these warring desires within us? What would it look like to pray that God might conform those things in who we are so that they actually match up with the good gifts he desires to give us as a father? And so to do that, let let me suggest doing that in two ways. One, as you go through this week, try to pay attention to what's happening inside of you. Maybe tomorrow morning you get on underway and your day's going along and suddenly you notice, like, you're really angry. You're, you're being really short with people. Or maybe you're, you're noticing, like, you're on top of the world, but you haven't really noticed why or, or what, what's driving those things. So pay attention to what's happening within you. But don't just notice the desire. Ask God about it. Bring God into that conversation. Lord, what's what's happening within me? Give me wisdom to understand what I'm feeling, how I'm responding. Is this healthy? Is this unhealthy? Is there something underneath this that I need need you to speak into? Bring God into your desires. So James says there's this reality of of what's going on within us. And moving into verses 4 and 5, he warns us that our hearts because of all that's going on within them, they're, they're like disputed territory. And it really matters what we have invited to take up residence within us. What lives there? Look at verses 4 and 5. And you can copy these out if you, if you brought your journal. James says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, Against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Verse 5. Or do you think Scripture says, without reason, that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Read that last verse again. Do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? If the language of verses 4 and 5 here seems charged to you, it's because it is. James is using provocative language He's, he's just called you and I adulterous people because he wants to wake us up. He wants us to pay attention to what he is communicating here. And when, when James uses those words about adultery, he's not likely singling out individuals that he thinks are engaged in some kind of extramarital affair. Rather, he's he's actually speaking to the whole of God's people. He's speaking to the church. He's warning us, all of us, that these desires that rage within us, they, they threaten to cheapen our relationship with God. They threaten to cheapen our place as God's beloved. James says, when we let our lusts, and our desires kind of drive us to and fro and cause us to to quarrel and fight with one another he says the result is a kind of adultery of the spirit and we're we're sacrificing the the steadfast love of the lord for all of these these flings with our own selfish wants and desires which relationship are we committed to? Are we in covenant with? The worship of ourselves or the worship of the living God? And so James is actually pulling that word, that that accusation of adultery, straight out of the Old Testament. This is an unfamiliar language to to the Jewish people, right? Whenever... Whenever the, the hearts of, of the people of Israel were, were prone to wander off in, into the worship of other gods, into the worship of their own power or possessions, the prophets would bring this charge of adultery. Right? The prophet Jeremiah warned Israel that they were like a faithless spouse in their relationship with the Lord. The prophet Hosea accused Israel of playing the harlot, by which he meant they they would take other gods, other desires, other idols to be their lovers instead of the love of God for them. So in verse 4, James warns us that this kind of relationship, this kind of of what he calls friendship in verse 4, with the world with the desires that rage within us. It results in enmity and hatred toward God. It's scorning the love of God. And the, the word for friendship here is hard to translate because it's connected to one of the Greek words for love. It's the word philos. And philos is probably a stronger idea than what we would translate friendship in, in modern English idiom. Philos could actually refer to kissing, an affectionate sort of expression of love. It also often referred to, to friendships, but deep committed friendships, partnerships, in which, which two or more people shared their plans and desires together. And so in asking about our friendship, I think James is asking us, who is our partner? Who are we binding up our affections and plans and desires with? And James knows the world, if if we're bound up with the world, if friendship with the world is what we're set on, it's poorly suited to, to satisfy our souls, right? Because James knows when he talks about the world, he's, he's recognizing all of these competing and conflicting desires and plans and commitments. And so our, our souls get stirred up with all of that stuff. Now let me be clear. When James says we're not to, to pursue friendship with the world... It doesn't negate our command to love the world. We remain commanded throughout the New Testament to love the world as God loves it, to love all the people and things it contains as God loves them. But to love the world well, to love the world rightly, we need our friendship, we need our partnership to be somewhere else. And back, if you go back into James 2, verse 23, James lifts up the example of Abraham as a man who was righteous, as a man who was full of wisdom, a man who was full of faith. And he says, because Abraham believed God and trusted in God and was God's partner in this deep and significant way through his faith, that he was actually called God's friend. Same word shows up there in 223. James is saying God is the appropriate partner, the appropriate object of our best thoughts, of our best time, of our best affections, of our plans, and of our desires. And as as the great Saint Augustine prayed in the Confessions, he said God has made us for himself, and so our hearts remain restless until they find their rest in God. And I think Augustine may have been thinking of verse 5 here in James 4, which, which continues with this language and this logic of romantic love. Verse 5 tells us that instead of adultery, instead of being caught up in all of these competing desires, what God longs for, what he jealously longs for, is that the spirit he created would dwell in us, That instead of, of the places deep within us being these battlegrounds where we're torn back and forth all the time by our desires, God longs for that place to be his home, his dwelling place, the place of his spirit's companionship and partnership and friendship. God longs for us to know the peace of his dwelling with us. And that that same idea of the the Spirit of God coming to make his home, that's what the words here mean, make his home with us and in us, is prayed by Jesus in John 14, where he, he prays that we would have peace as he leaves, as he departs. And in that prayer, he prays for the disciples. He prays for all who would come after them. And he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And this is the promise. My Father will love them. And we, the Father and the Son, we will come to them and we will make our home with them. So I want to give you just another second practice, a simple practice this week. As you're going about your week noticing your desires and inviting God to speak into them, then then an additional practice is to invite God's Spirit to dwell there. With you, And you could do that in a variety of ways. Inviting God's Spirit to dwell within us might be obeying his command, his word to us, following through on something we sense God telling us to do. We can invite God's Spirit to dwell in us by resting in him when we're weary. If we feel overcome by these emotions and desires within us, then go to God and, and invite him to bring rest by being with you. You can invite God's Spirit to dwell in you by pursuing worship this week intentionally. Find, find whatever way you like to worship the Lord and make space to do that with him. And finally, you can invite the Spirit, the Spirit of God to dwell in you by, by rehearsing who you are. Remember back Last spring, we talked about our identity in Christ. All of those passages about who you are in Christ. Rehearse those things. Review those things. Meditate on those things. And you're you're providing space for God to make his home in you.